Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Third Person Podcast. Uh, I am your host, Chris Milhouse, and my co-host, as always, is Mr. Daryl Hammond. Hello, Daryl. How are you today? I'm fair to partly cloudy. How are you? <laughs> fair as well. And we are also joined uh, with uh, our producer, Jim Search, as well. Hey, what's going on, party people? How are we doing out there? We are, we're doing pretty good. We got some good vibes lately, man. We, uh, I know we, we record, for those of you who don't know, we record some of these in advance. Um, and, um, sometimes we don't get to be as current as we'd like, but we just had an election and I'm pretty high off of it because I am a big believer in, I don't know, decency and, uh, a norm- change. <laughs> a normal government. Perhaps. A normal government of uh, somebody that cares. And so uh, I am very happy with the Biden outcome, and I welcome some nice news for once in this fucking weird year that we are living in. It's nice to have something good come about. Well, this is the way I, this is the way I look at it, Chris. Which candidate would be okay with strangling a puppy to death? <laughs> Which mean- one? Well, um, it, it lets, I'm going to take a shot in the dark and say not Biden. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure Joe Biden couldn't do it. Which pretty is sure. interesting. You say that because Trump is the first president to not have a dog. So <laughs> yeah, there you go. There, Isn't there that go. weird? It's he's what? the only one. Yeah. Now, Wait, I, I. What happened to little Fluffy? I heard about. No, that's, terrible. <laughs> yeah. that's so sad. Well, I'm uh, I'm happy, and it, uh, even though the election results took forever, which we were fine with because it helped out in the end with the all the cal- counting of the ballots and you know this COVID era that we everyone mailed in their ballots this year around um, this year this this election this time around. But uh, I don't know, man. I've just been in a good mood ever since. You know, I mean that that news dropped on uh, Saturday. We're filming this and recording this on uh, Wednesday or Tuesday. Sorry, no, wait, today's Wednesday. Or say Tuesday. I don't Tuesday. know. This Tuesday. is 2020. I never know what day of the week it is anymore. I didn't even know yeah. November until the election hit. And I was like, oh, shit, where have we been? Um, How many believe here that Trump is just establishing a new brand as National Martyr and then he'll have his own team, TV network? Well, oh. he's, he announced that before the Hillary thing. He wanted to build his own TV network. And that he didn't think he was going to win. And that was the general consensus that he was building up for his new TV network. He's going to lose. Well, I mean, he got 70, there's 70 million viewers already. No right. shit, man. That voted for him and uh, yeah, I think charged them, you charged them three to six dollars a piece. As much so, as we don't want to see any more of him, we're probably <laughs> going to see a lot more of him just on a lot of news programs and a lot of, you know, stuff about his own network. But, uh, Man, it feels good right now. Um, I'm hoping that, uh, you know, things do come and change. And, you know, we obviously have still have two more months and, Let's get through these next two months, guys. But uh, which is real- kind of crazy because as much as this guy hates the news and the media, he's sure ready to create his own media news outlet, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's going to be Mister Media now. Oh boy. <laughs> well, um, I as much as I would really like to talk more about this, we do have a really really amazing guest here uh, today. Um, before I get to him, I want to remind all of our listeners, please. Subscribe and download all of our episodes. Uh, it really helps when you subscribe and what helps when you download. It also helps when you give us five stars. So please shoot us five stars. Have we ever gotten five stars? We've gotten a lot of five stars, which is good, but we're trying to get more so we can get uh, beat this algorithm and get it going and make sure that uh, 
our podcast becomes a huge hit across uh, many countries. Uh, so thank you guys who have already done that. Thank you for your nice comments. Make sure you follow us on social media. I am at Chris Milhouse. He's at Daryl C. Hammond. And then that is Jim Search, our producer at Jim Search. Um, we do have a really great guest today. One of the biggest stand-up comics of all time. Uh, this guy is a legend. And Let, uh, let that sink in for a second. For sure. Biggest uh, comics of all time. One of the biggest comics of all time. He's had legendary specials. He's sold out Madison Square Garden. He has double platinum comedy records. I mean, it doesn't get much better than this. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and welcome our new guest, uh, which will be the legendary Dane Cook. What's up, Chris? You see me? Hey, there he is. How are you, Dane? Dude, what's going on? Did you on hear now? that intro? Did he, hey, man, did he? Do you hear that intro he just gave you? I heard nothing. Oh my god! It was like <laughs> it was like it, it was so elaborate. Go back over it. One of the I said uh, I told our, our listeners I said please welcome one of the most legendary stand-up comedians of our time. One of the biggest legendary. Uh, I'm sorry, I had a lot of coffee. One of the biggest comics of all time. A guy who has uh, not only put out many iconic specials, but Sold out Madison Square Garden, had double platinum comedy records. Mr. Dane Cook, thank you for joining us today. I thought you were going, you were going to intro Chappelle. No, it's you, my friend. I'm so glad to have you on, dude. It's nice to see you again, man. It's awesome to be here with you guys. Thank you so much for the invite, fellas. Yeah, man, I appreciate you being here. Um, uh, how have you uh, how you been during this whole thing, my friend? I'm holding up. I mean, what a, you know, I don't want to sound like a broken record because everybody's, you know, probably coming at you with the same origin of what this year has been. But I have found it to be uh, enlightening. I have connected with people in deep and meaningful ways that's beyond anything I could have imagined. Um, I've done my very best to try to... uh, uplift the community around me by, you know, doing some charity stuff and and just focusing that energy that's normally so, um, you know, uh, it it, it becomes a selfish industry. It's all about your next set, your next joke, your next audition. Um, And breaking that up felt, uh, I don't know, it just kind of felt like the pieces weren't falling apart, but in a way for me falling together. It's great, man. That's actually, that's very admirable. I mean, I've, there's a lot of people that, you know, they, this has affected them in different ways and people, you know, some people have been, you know, uh, a little lethargic and some people have tried to take it more, you know, by the balls, if you will, and actually try to do something good with all this time. And that would be you, Chris, and your rooftop shows. Yeah. I've done some rooftop shows a lot during this thing. Uh, but you know, it's, I don't know if you've done any shows at all uh, during this at all, Dane. Nothing. No. None. Okay, I, and I and I haven't had a desire to because I have this whole philosophy, and I've really lived my kind of whole life like this, and certainly my professional life, which is when I get knocked down or knocked off where I think is a a pedestal or I'm in a high watermark moment, I kind of feel like that undertow, which I used to be so fucking scared of, and I would try to swim to the surface of. I, I just I try to go with it because it leads me to more um, introspective uh, in in places you know both internally and on my journey in the world uh, that are way more interesting than I than my own personal agenda uh, has taken me to and just along the way it's interesting because I wanted to bring this up you know just opening my eyes to so many other of my peers and I got a chance to tell Daryl how much I 
admired the documentary that I finally got a chance to see cracked up. And, uh, you know, we didn't get a, uh, a, a lot of time to talk about it at the comedy store, but I mean, honestly, it was Daryl. It was so valiant is how I felt watching it. And I felt like it reminded me uh, of some of the things that I needed to kind of rewire and reset myself in terms of just, you know, not being afraid to be bold and be honest uh, and it made me dive back into my book. I started writing a book about a year and a half ago, and it's the hardest, most laboring uh, thing that I've ever had to do because you start writing a book, and I'm sure maybe, Daryl, you felt this to some capacity in the documentary. You go through waves of, like, am I oversharing? Who the fuck cares? Why am I interesting? And you start really you know, beating yourself up. And I was doing that with this book because it's very personal. My parents dying of cancer, putting my brother in jail, going through, you know, backlash in the industry and just all the stuff that I wasn't. What was the backlash in the, may I ask, what was the backlash in the industry? Yeah, I think that it was a mixture probably of that tipping point of when a career is, uh, I had a pretty good run of maybe about six years where, you know, people would kind of, you know, whatever, you'd get those phone calls like, you're untouchable. Uh, you know, this will never stop. You're <laughs> and and I'd, I'd read enough. Uh, I'm just an insatiable, I guess, learner and reader. And I knew that the end was going to be in sight. But I guess what I didn't realize what what was going to happen for, for, for me was there was this tipping point of people, you know, getting sick of what I was doing, wanting to see who the next girl or guy was going to be to come up the ranks. And then as that was happening, going through the strife of my parents, my brother, and then not fighting back on maybe some of the small battles when it was like the stuff with Louie, which at the time was really humiliating in public. Um, I just didn't have the energy or the want to fight those small, what I thought was small fights, because I was dealing with trauma. Yeah. Um, yeah, man. I mean, you've been through a lot, dude, and that's that's a lot to talk about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, came I, do, I, I, do, I do trauma webinars about trauma. Yeah, I, I saw that, some of that stuff, man. Uh, awesome. Tomorrow's going to, the tomorrow one's, to, tomorrow's will be really good if you're bored. It's uh, with Eve Insler. It's pretty fucking good, but you, um, you were sailing along on a moonlight bay and then some fucked up shit happened to you. And it happened to me too. Yeah. You don't really realize when you're dazzling them up on the high wire that this is going to end or at least modify. Right. Right. You also and don't so, realize that that's exactly what you need and will be the best thing for the next phase of your journey. Yeah, there's a great, uh, I like to listen to uh, preachers a lot. I'm a fan of just watching preachers. And there's this guy who says, um, there's something, I, no, I don't want to talk about the Bible, but he says, that I, he's talking about a particular situation. And he said, I wanted God to change the situation, but God wanted the situation to change me, you know? And you get a sense of being pushed into your purpose. Like I did have a big career. I have a small career now, but I'm doing a lot of a lot of service, like a ton of service, and it feels pretty good. Yeah, the big career though, I don't know, man. It's like a piece of you is there, but then you're part of a much bigger industrial machine. And what I found was after I got over the upper echelon and went through the the, the therapy of 
grieving, grieving and betrayal, I started to realize, oh, wow, it was more meaningful for me to have real human interaction as opposed to just be the cottage industry of comedy at that moment. That was too much. No, that's a lot of pressure. You want it, but once you get it, it's like, I don't, I don't know if I want to be at the helm of this. Yeah, it's almost like being King Kong on top of the Empire State Building. Everyone's fucking coming at you, trying to steal your shit, you know, <laughs> trying to criticize you, compare you to someone else. Like, you're up there, and really, some people don't want you to stay up there. And right. and I didn't realize, and I I mean, if you said to me, um, you know, theoretically, is show business a rough place to be? I mean, it's a place where horrific shit can happen to you. You know, and it happens to every single person sooner or later, you know. And and there's that argument, and people will probably say right now, well, you know, everybody deals with that. But the one caveat is then you're a headline. And humiliation on a small scale with maybe a few people experiencing that hardship, imagine it magnified to where the whole world is seeing this and then access to you somehow through a Twitter or some way to say, you fucking deserve what you're getting right now. Oh, I'm why would they say that to you? Because people well, are shitty. <laughs> but, people suck. No, but they're not. The, Chris, that's the, this, is, this is the strange and interesting thing. They're not shitty. They, they're hurt. And they're, and they're lost. And they're going through some cycle in their own life. And the only reason I know that is because I went from a nobody, a welfare kid from Arlington, Massachusetts to the guy with no playbook, then I hit such a peak that it became almost stupid. Everybody's wanting a piece of you for good or for bad. Yeah. And then what happens is you get all these, these haters, you get all this backlash, and how do I know it's good? Because years pass, and I start receiving the most beautiful sentiment, <laughs> personally and through emails or DMs, from people saying, I wanted to apologize. I've been carrying how I treated you for years. And they explain word for word why they they chose me. And it's a beautiful thing. And, man, I've written a lot of people back within minutes of, like, I remember when you wrote me that eight years ago. I remember everything. Um, Yeah. And I say, it's cool. Let it go. It's all good. Yeah, and when I say people are shitty, I mean, like, people are shitty in the moment, man. Like, and I don't mean, like, you know, to, to you know, throw a lot of people on the bus with that kind of stuff. But it is kind of like a lot of people do displace their, something going on in their own lives and some sort of things that they have on celebrities. And that's, I mean, a lot of times when you see people trolling people online, it's yeah. something that there's going on with them. There's something that they're, like, that they're, you know, just transferring towards whatever person will listen or, like, you know. Yeah read those and it's it, you know it's shitty in the moment but yeah man it's uh, you've, you've been through some through yeah some but I, I i never I, I, I was i was never king of the mountain like that i mean selling out the garden platinum records and shit you know, i'm the my kind of guy i reached a sort of level where people were like hey daryl yeah man yeah let me shit yeah all right yeah he's a you know where's that <laughs> that's a great, that's like, a great is that daryl you're like the guy yeah okay yeah 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 you're pretty good I remember a guy came up to me in the store after one of my best sets, and him and his friends went, "Hey, you're not never saw you stand up. You're you're not bad. You're okay." And I'm like, "That's not the same thing as Dane Cook selling out the garden <laughs> and crushing. I mean, crushing. And like when you did SNL, you know, I warmed up the crowd for you that night. 
Yeah. Your manager gave me a special major, uh, authentic Major League Baseball, which still sits on the shelf over there. Um, and I was, I was so happy to do that, to, to get them ready, nice and ready for you. Well, one of, the, one, one of the cool things about having you on, Dane, is that, um, you know, we've had a lot of um, former SNL cast members. But we've never had somebody on that's hosted. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a really cool thing to do. And, it, like, obviously you've done a lot of cool shit, but, like, um, I don't know. Do you, do you remember oh, much about all that? I mean. That's got to be the coolest. Yeah. It has to be. I, think, I don't think anything will ever, ha- uh, you know, a kid seventh grade watching uh, Martin Short, uh, Ed, you know, Ed Grimley watching, you know, uh, Billy Crystal, Eddie Murphy, growing up as a, as a, with an insatiable need to feel that kind of love through laughter, whatever that meant. I knew I got it in my home, but I watched it on SNL, this portal to a place where you could be different and you were okay. And I felt so sad. And so I'm not trying to be a bummer, but I was such a self-loathing kid mm. that uh, I, SNL – you know, I couldn't wait to to watch it on Saturday nights. And when I finally was after this this incredible journey there and standing backstage behind the the door, waiting for my name to be called by by Don Pardo, who was there at the time. I have great pictures backstage. Mm-hmm. Um, it was truly the moment in my life where I felt um, th- the greatest self worth because I worked hard enough to get the one thing that triggered the the purpose driven life for myself it was amazing yeah That's yeah, awesome, yeah. i mean it was, dope. was it was it um <laughs> as good and oh as, as walking on stage at, okay. at the garden um <laughs> it, it, all, all those big arena shows and in the garden and in amazing high watermarks the energy the the electricity but snl First of all, I'll tell you the very quick, unique journey about SNL. When I first was in New York City, um, they were scouting me. They were coming down and seeing me, and I knew that they were looking for a replacement at that time. Um, And I went to – it was – I went to 30 Rock, and I had a uh, panic attack before I went in for my audition. And I sat with my Ray-Ban glasses on outside, staring, like, looking up like this in the building, having a full-on meltdown. I don't have a cell phone at the time. It's pay phones. I go, I find a pay phone. First, I call my mom, and I say, I can't do this. I can't, I can't go in. I'm fucking freaking out. And she was, like, loving. My mom was my best, my best buddy. And she said, you know, maybe it's not your time. It's okay. It doesn't have to... And I'm struggling. Then my managers at the time were like, you got to go. This is your opportunity. And I didn't. I you didn't, didn't go? go. Oh, shit. I did not go in for my audition. Jimmy Fallon went in. And listen, Jimmy probably would have gotten it anyway. But I never even went in to go up against these guys to, to, get, to, to give my shot. I knew that they were interested. But I knew I wasn't going to say it was mine to lose. But my gut told me I had a really good shot at doing this. Why didn't I go? Why did I have a breakdown? Because I knew and Daryl, you know, I'm sure you have so many amazing stories about this. I am a non-confrontational person who had to learn to be confrontational in this industry. And at that time I was a beta. 
I had the spine of a noodle. I was oh. I was only brave on stage. The guy you guys saw in the village, that was the guy I wanted to be in life. And so I couldn't go. I didn't go. And for a lot of years, as I was back on the road, just trying to figure it out, you know, I'd look at Jimmy some, sometimes and be like, man, you know, I wonder if I fucked up. But I still felt like something in me was like leading me to a different path that was my path. And lo and behold, all those years later, retaliation comes out. And Lauren Michaels calls me in my hotel room. I was in uh, Vegas for the Vegas Comedy Festival. And he said, you're hosting. And I just was like, <laughs> it what? all made sense. It all clicked. Yeah. All the bad, all the mistakes that I thought I made, all the, it was a defining moment in my life. And when I finally got there, the one thing that I remember, you know, I hosted it twice, like a season ending. And then the winter uh, it was kind of close. They were like within a few episodes of whatever the break was. And the thing that I remember most about the two things I remember most about SNL. I mean, I have a lot of stories, but I won't like bore you guys with all of them. But the two things that stand out was standing behind the door and finally hearing my name, Dane Cook, and opening that door <laughs> and and standing on the mark. And actually, because I kind of like I'm one of those performers, I I'm very in my head as I'm, I'm editing and talking to myself as I'm performing. And I remember telling myself. This is where I watched for all those years. You made it. You, you manifested this to, to be standing where you wanted to stand. And I was very proud. And then the second thing I remember is how, how scared I was the second time because I had one of the edgiest routines that Lauren said was ever in a monologue, which was a whole thing about suicide. And they really fought me on it and didn't want me to do it and standards of practice. And they made me feel like shit because of the – the edginess of this content, but Lauren came into the dressing room, took me into his office and said, you know, do you believe in it? Is it what you want to do? And I said, I do. And he fought for me on it. And I just remember doing this incredibly, um, you know, difficult bit to translate on, you know, national television and doing it. And I remember feeling so proud that it was a part of the show. And that a few days later, a 14 year old girl wrote me on email and said, I'd been contemplating suicide. I hate my life. I hate who I am. And I immediately, I'm breaking down because everything she's saying reminded me of me when I was 14, watching SNL. And she said, but by laughing at that with my family watching, you allowed me to express to them that I sometimes have those thoughts. And I was like, it's great, I don't man. care what anybody says about the monologue or me or whatever. From this moment forward, that mattered to me more than anything. That the thing that drove me to be somebody... I had a message that healed one person who didn't take their life. And I love that. That's incredible, man. That's very impressive. That's awesome. Hey, man. I once had someone come up to me and um, I was doing um, entertainment tonight or something like that. And after I wrote the book and a mom brought her daughter up who held her arms out where there had been cuts. And she said, I just want you to know you saved my daughter's life. Hmm. I was like, Jesus. You get a lot of messages I've seen on your, your social media and stuff. Like, you you know, he's gotten a lot of messages about um, this movie helping people and, oh, and, and just being such a, 
a thing to like, it's a good thing to talk about because a lot of people always feel so alone with that type of stuff, whether it's depression or mental illness or any sort of things that they're going through in their life. And to hear like someone that, you know, from television, somebody that you've seen just talk about it is a huge thing to make you feel like you're not alone. But, but on top of that, Chris, when Daryl, with, with what Daryl shared, it was like when a person who makes you laugh is the person that's yeah. also telling you it's okay to be in pain because mm-hmm. that pain will fortify your ability to succeed. I, that's more than anybody. Those are the people that have impacted me. And I want to emulate those people. Yeah. The first thing I wrote on my first website, whenever that was, 1999 or 2000, I remember my like mission statement. I wrote, um, I hope if you join this you know, journey, um, don't, join, don't follow me if you're not a fan of risks because I plan on taking a lot of them in my career. I don't always want to be funny here. I don't always want to. And I was trying to prepare people that like I'm, I'm, a, I'm a person with a lot of emotion. I'm a sensitive person. And I wanted to be able to be both things. So when I see, like, when Daryl did that, I just, like, I think I watched most of it. Like, like when I have my hands on my head, you're really, like, you're getting me. And yeah. I'm watching, and I'm going, he's helping so He's helping me. He's helping so many people. Because when the person who makes you laugh can tell you it's okay to fucking break apart. Yeah. And I, I, lo- I loved personally just to, his message was that, you know, you can, st- you can come out of it. You can come out on the other side. You can you can make it through and and the, you can beat whatever demons or things that you are fighting you know whether it's addiction or something yeah. else you know and it was it was it was great to see that and, and I mean I'm I, I'm so you know I I you and I have known each other for a while uh, but Daryl and I have only known each other for like a year or two now and like oh. just to work with Daryl has been such mm. a pleasure and I uh, absolutely love it so far so it's been it's been great just to do this podcast man and you know it, it's uh, it's fun it's fun to fun to ride the coattails of an SNL legend, as I call it. (laughs) I think the thing that really inspired me was uh, my whole life I'd been living um, not really knowing what was wrong with me. And there were two people that did know what was wrong with me. And those were my parents. And they knew that something had happened. My father didn't do anything because he was too drunk. But, and I, you know, be something fucked up happens to you and the the person that does it to you expects you not to tell. That was the thing. I was like, one fucking day, I'm going to blab my my hat off. (laughs) One day, I'm going to fucking shout it and and I want everyone to hear, this is what happened inside this house. You know? All you... I mean, look... I got... I got nothing against Bible Belt people. I loved the church there then. I love the church there now. It's a nice church. But, you know, my whole point that I wanted to, like, leave on earth was that monsters hide in the light. You know, all the good people are there, and there are good people. Good expression, man. You know, they are good people, and that's why I said I liked that church a lot. But right in the middle of them, was someone who was doing some fucking dirty shit. Right. And because back then, if you could quote enough scripture, people just love you alone. Right. If you cut your grass and you wash your clothes, 
and you did, two, you know, the church, all the church bake sales, and you went twice a week. I mean, fucking Hitler could hide in that church, you know. But monsters know how to hide, you know. And they hide in the light. So, well, I've read, second, I've read so much about, you know, sociopaths and having dealt with, you know, my brother and all that, you know, and living with one and not even realizing until I understood, you know, megalomania and narcissism and. It, like I had to go through a lot of, uh, I had to really educate myself. But once I understood that it was what you, what you're saying, they're so good at being chameleon like, and they know the, how to, um, they call that mirroring. They know how to mirror you and they know how to betray you with love. And they also know how to pad you with fear so that you don't go blabbing and telling. Well, that's very, that's, very the, cunning. that's the classic contractor uh, contract between perp, perpetrator and victim. I'll make it worse on you uh, if you tell. So right. you're just supposed to live in, with that. In a, way, in a way, you almost have to be like, God, that's you're fucking good. Like, you're good. <laughs> in the scavengers of life role, shit, you're a general. You have you have utilized all those fucking negative check marks to your favor. I almost had to look at my brother years later as I was learning to unpack and I almost couldn't even be mad because I was like, man, you really, you really played me good. It was almost like, oh, good game. You figured it out. It's so weird. It's such a strange dynamic when you start to understand what makes somebody evil or despicable or bad. And, and, and the show that they put on daily for others that everyone buys right. saying all the right things, you know, Right. I remember my mom's funeral. People were like, um, "You had the people used to say to me, you have the world's best mom.' You know, meanwhile I had fucking ligature marks from being electrocuted and shit. But I was too, believe me when I tell you, I was too afraid of her to do anything until uh, until she was dead. I was yeah. still scared of her. I'm still scared of her. I might go lock my door right now. <laughs> Well, I mean, the good thing I can see from both of you is that you've all you both have come out on the other side on this. And and, and it's, I feel like you know, I feel like this conversation got so heavy that the leaves on the tree behind Chris have withered and fallen off. <laughs> that used to be a very plush tree. Yeah, Chris. Are there leaves on the floor in there? <laughs> yeah, apparently. Uh, well, I'm just glad, that, like I said, I'm glad you both seem to come out on the other side of this. And it's, uh, as much as it's uh, it sucked to go through, um, I, you know, I feel like it's a pleasure to know both you, of you. Well, Chris, you can take seemed right out of that sentence because I, 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 I love where I'm at. Good. I love my life and career. And I love that I can now as the old bull in the second act of my life and career I'm doing everything that I can to, you know, it's, it's a cliche expression, but pay it forward by trying to be a mentor who says, let me tell you about some of the failures and some of my hardships and hurricane yeah. moments to try to take the edge. Everybody's got to experience their shit, but that's kind of been my thing, man. If, I'm, if somebody comes to me for, for help or advice or, you know, mentorship, you know, you get the Boston kid in me. I'm assertive. I'm not going to tell you anything that you want to hear. I'm going to tell you just the fucking gray area real. Um, but I feel like that's the stuff that, you know, can help catapult people to, uh, you know, higher learning and a better, more self-introspective place. So it's nice to be there both personally and professionally, finally, 
after years of feeling capsized and lopsided and just having it all present is a good, good feeling. So there's no seams. It's, it is. Okay. okay. Fair enough, man. Fair so enough. Listen, do you recall, um, I was uh, doing a set at the Laugh Factory uh, maybe eight or nine, ten months ago. Do you remember this? And you called Jamie and said, tell Daryl to wait. I want to I want to take a picture with him. Yeah. <laughs> so Jamie came over and said, yeah, you know, he wants you to wait yeah. to take a picture with you. And I was like, wow, I'm so fucking flattered. Oh, man. Like, Dude, that's – I mean, I can think of ten times I've sat in the corner at the comedy store and seeing you go on stage and crush. And I, if I was there when you were there, I always made a point of watching your, your great, your sets. Oh so. man. You know, it's, it's, it was, um, I wanted to take that picture and I don't think we, again, we didn't really have a lot of time to chat, but years earlier we had been doing some NACA college gigs in the same group. And that kind of moment in my life, I think I was defined by a lot of, comics in that New York scene is like, I have my hat on, I kind of came in, I fucking did my thing, and then maybe I was too good for the scene, or, or I didn't hang out. Mm. And it kind of painted me into a place of like, uh, I don't know, I'm an outsider, I'm, I'm whatever, lone wolf. And it actually was like, I was still learning about loneliness. And as an adult child of an alcoholic, I still mm. was also trying to construct with a little help from Al-Anon's and anywhere else I could get it. Like, how can I, how can I be um, comfortable in my own skin saying to people that maybe are drinking and imbibing like, Hey, I want to feel like you care about me. I don't do those things. Um, and I did not know how to, to, you know, uh, be proactive in those moments. And there was a picture taken of us and it, 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 we're all in a parking lot after one of the gigs. And in the picture, I'm kind of standing off to the side. I just, always wanted to know you in a better way. It's weird. And then I watched you on SNL and I always felt like I wait and a few guys, I, I'm saying this to you. I think I expressed this to Norton and a few guys that like, I just admired and we were in and around, but I always felt like I just never felt comfortable enough to, to just to hang. And that picture to me was finally just my comfortability saying I admire Daryl and I'm a fan uh, from all the way back when we gig together um, and I was happy to hear that you were wanting to do that with me. <laughs> yeah, that was really cool. I was real flattered, and I haven't forgotten that. Very nice. Much. Yeah, hell yeah. Yeah, man. I mean, like, I, I don't, uh, I, I don't, I took a picture with you, Dane. Uh, I still have it. I'll send it to you. But it's like a. I have it. I have it. It popped up on my time hop just recently. Nice. We've known each other for a little while, man. I mean, um, for those listening, like, I used to produce shows in L.A. Um, I moved. I ended up moving to New York. Uh, I don't. I mean, for a while there, I'm not sure if you realize, but like, I, look, man, when when you when you're in LA, it's like you 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 come to play with the big boys, man. There's a lot of famous people that you're competing for stage time with, and it's hard when you're a young comic coming up to get some of that time in Los Angeles. And I was never able to really develop as a comic like I wanted to. I really cared about the, the art of stand up, and I always wanted to be a stand up like that was good and not just somebody good enough to get on some of these stages. So like I spent, you know, seven or eight years in, in LA and then I started going to New York and then I just moved to New York eventually where I got to work on the craft and, you know, try to get better and things like that. But um, one of the things when, uh, when I was first coming up in LA was getting to do shows like Comedy Juice that had you on and you would always like, 
you know, be cool enough to drop in. And uh, you were always very nice to me, so I always appreciated it, man. So, like, you know, it's a, it's good to, you know, reconnect with you all these years later, you know? <laughs> like, we uh, I'll have to do a throwback Thursday or some shit with that picture <laughs> on Instagram. I will retweet it or repost it or whatever that might be. But, yeah, yeah. We, go, we go way back, man. You know, you're a grinder. And uh, I just, you know, I don't suffer fools. Uh, you know, I, I want to be around people that are, you know, real. I want to be around grinder people that are just working hard. Um, and I always tell people, it's like, you know, my door's open, my DM's open. I still am as interactive with fans and friends, but, but I just, I don't try to push myself on people or places that, you know, don't want me. Uh, and that's probably going all the way back to when Daryl, you asked like, where did some of the, you know, backlash, you know, where was it maybe at its most pivotal and I think the thing that stung more than anything else was I grew up having an idea that uh, comedy was like athleticism. My dad was a, an athlete, former athlete. And I always thought that it was like such a, because watching it, whether it was young comedian specials or SNL, I always thought it was such a gang. And I didn't know it was a click. I didn't know there was like an alt group and a fucking sketch group. And, and I didn't, I had no clue. I was so naive to that. And as I started to kind of break through, I guess I, it was a moment I thought I was going to be like embraced and like, yeah, he, he, he did work hard. And we all, and, and instead I started getting so much shit from the Galifianakis of the world and, you know, CK and, you know, like guys like that. I love like, even like David Cross, like these dudes that I admired were just so hard on me. Yeah. Um, and that was the one probably the one area of this industry that took the longest to, to finally um, come to some kind of understanding of the competitiveness and the dog eat dog mentality. Cause I love comedians, men, women, guys, girls, where are you from background? The more different you are from me, then that lets me laugh at your world. And hopefully I can do the same for you. Uh, but that was the hardest. That was the hardest part of the whole trajectory meeting, you know, the end of that line and then, you know, that the lack of that support that I was hoping to get. Well, and I found, sorry, and sorry, I found I that a lot of those next guys coming up like you, Chris, were just so uh, spirited and like loving. And I appreciated that. And I felt like I didn't always get that from my own squad. And yet some of it is what I just owned with Daryl, which was I also didn't do all my sweeping up my side of the street to say, Hey, I need to work harder so you get to know me better. Yeah. Well, one of the things for me personally was that like when I produced shows there, I it was there's a, there's a different vibe in LA than there is in New York. And this is going back to maybe something some of the things you just said, but with me in LA when I produced shows there, I wanted to just produce shows that were gr- like good, like great. Like I wanted to put like the funniest comedians that I, that I had the pleasure of knowing on one lineup, you know, like I was just trying to put together great shows to be a part of good lineups. If I could, you know, um, most of the time I hosted and that's, you know, kind of been my thing where I love hosting now. It's so funny going back to then where, you know, they, in LA, they feel like they kind of treat the host as, ah, you're just like the newest guy. You can go up and you can host. And then, you know, here in New York, it's opposite. It's like, you know, the, the host is somebody that they respect and they literally like, you know, they give you the time to set it up and really like, you know, make the crowd warmed up for everyone else. Um, which I learned years later, but anyway, like 
I, uh, I don't know if this maybe is something that you experienced, but like when I was in LA, um, I feel like everyone always thought I had like ulterior motives of like why I'm putting certain people on certain shows and like why I'm doing this and why I'm doing that. And, you know, like there wasn't, I was just trying to put together great shows and like, obviously like, you know, some people like you, I'm lucky enough to like been friends with and in New York, you got a different vibe. Like New York comics seem to be more of that. Like, unless you're, unless you're grinding it out, working in the trenches and unless we see you all the fucking time, every single night, day in, day out, we don't give a fuck who you are. Like, and it's right. It's kind of that feeling, but like, you know, I mean, I've been out here for, you know, a few years now, like about five, six years now at least. And, um, and now I'm starting to, because I work at all these clubs now, I've been, I've become the paid regular at some of these places. You start to kind of gain respect from some of the guys who have been around a long time, you know, sure. like it, and it's, it, it's, it is a definite difference you see. Like, and I, I feel like, you know, maybe because some of these New Yorkers looked at you like, oh, you skyrocketed so quick. You didn't live in New York long enough. Like you, you should have put more time into New York, you know, like that kind of, maybe that was that kind of vibe, but um, I don't know. That's just something that I noticed. I don't know if Daryl, if you've, because you, Daryl lived here for a long time in New York. Uh, he's in New York now too. But like, you know, did you ever notice that when you were working the clubs? Like, it seemed to be a lot of like they want you to hang out. They want you to. They want to see you every night to kind of. I mean, you, you know, the, back in the day <clears throat> before I got SNL, I know I was doing three hundred sets a year. I know it was easily. I mean, Friday and Saturday night was six sets. Yeah, you know. Boston Comedy Club, Comedy Store, I mean, um, Comic Strip, and The Cellar. Yeah. And you or do for, that whole thing, too. Was, or for me, it was Boston Comedy Club, The Wah, which SD was doing for a while, go over <laughs> to The Cellar. Sometimes it was three, six, maybe even eight. It was amazing. Yeah, I mean, I was never not on stage. I was never not. I mean, that was went on for years. I mean, eight, nine, ten years. I went up 300 nights a year. At least. Yeah. At least. And um, by the time I got in front of Lauren Michaels, I'd spent so much time in front of so many perilous situations, had so many rough sets that I had some sort of steeliness, uh, like a headset to me of like, I mean, bulletproof. Right. By the time I walked into that room and he was the only person in the room, just me and him, it was the most terrifying thing that ever happened to me. But those million fucking sets in the middle of the night at the cellar, <laughs> I somehow, I thought to myself, hold on, dude. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if I hadn't, yeah. if I hadn't had those fucking, many of them were great experiences. There were a lot of fucking bad ones. I had a lot of fucking bad sets in the beginning. And if I hadn't experienced that before, I wouldn't have had the nerve to stand in front of him on the very spot that you're talking about where you stood, Dave. Right. And then I remember thinking to myself, holy shit, I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. I, I, you know, I think the only, outside of SNL, the only place that I kind of had that out-of-body but deeper in-my-body experience was the first time I did Letterman, and I stood there and thought to myself, the Beatles have stood here. Elvis has stood here. I can't suck right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're, you're right. But you're right. Wow, but those, what an those tell me, tell me about you. that. Tell me, tell me about the Ed Sullivan Theater for you. Um, oh, man. Zoe Friedman saw me down in the village doing my, doing my sets. I used to have a bit 
for my first album about Speak and Spell. I wrote that bit when I was in, in seventh or eighth grade, already ah. thinking of comedy I want to do. I already did an impression of the Speak and Spell that I had at my house. I thought if I ever did stand up. And so I'm doing this bit for you know years in Boston and cultivating it. And it's funny. It always kills. And uh, she saw me do it. She said, do you have any other nostalgic stuff like that? And I brought up some other stuff about Monopoly and other games. And the next thing you know, she was like, you know, you, you know, we'd love to have you on the show. And I remember, you know, going there and going through the whole rigmarole of like, you know, if, if Dave, you don't touch Dave and make sure that you don't like, you know, there was all these like uh, <laughs> rules and regulations, but he couldn't have been sweeter to me. And it couldn't have been more of like um, my validation moment as a pers- person in profession in this profession, because I knew after I did that spot that it would help me to get enough money on the road to give it a few more years, you know? Was that your first big TV credit? Yeah. That's that awesome. It. it was a game changer. Uh, up until then, I was actually half back in and out of Boston. I don't think a lot of people know that I had so much anxiety and fear in New York. I only loved doing sets at night. The rest of the day, I fucking hated it. I was mortified there. <laughs> I would sneak into the Lincoln Center movie theater and I would see the same movies all day. So I didn't need to go home and just, I didn't know how to be in silence because in silence and Daryl, you know this, that's when the old tapes and that's when everything starts. So I'd see movies all day until my sets. And then I wanted to do as many sets all night as I could, and then just go to sleep and have to suffer through. So I was in Boston, one foot in Boston, kind of going back to a girl I was there with, doing my sets in New York, Boston. And then right when I was about to tip back into probably just going home and being a great regional act in Beantown, (laughs) that's when Zoe saw me, and that pushed me west. That made me go away from home. That was the beginning. That was really the beginning of my career from Letterman at Sullivan Theater. Yeah, because I I remember standing on that spot thinking the same thing about the Beatles, the Stones, (laughs) Richard Pryor. Right? What? What? (laughs) (laughs) How how long before that did you do the, until what, like the half hour special came out? Because that was... Your half yeah. hour special, like comics still talk about that, Dane. Like it's one of the top half hour or hour specials. I mean, I don't, I know it's half hour on Comedy Central and then they turned yeah. it into an album. And I mean, it was, it was, it's great, man. It's really like legendary. Thanks. You know, listen, by that time I'd been, you know, I'd been uh, road tested and I was like Daryl just said, bulletproof. Um, I was work. I was growing into my confidence I had become offstage. The per- I learned who to be offstage from who I was on stage. I learned timing in life from timing on stage. I learned being brave in life. I learned being assertive by standing up to hecklers. And what everything I learned about who I really wanted to be was I was em- I was emulating a version of myself that I then want that was me. I literally finally in my own therapy one time was like, oh wow, that is me. That is me. Those are all the pieces of me that I'm too afraid to embrace and say, I am fucking good enough. Yeah. I am good enough. I I will own that. And then also be able to own where I wasn't, you know, where I had failed in life, where I had failed people, failed my family, myself. And, And once I had all that together and that special came along and they offered me that half hour, dude, I was like, okay, I'm just starting to get good 
but I've got the goods. Um, and so I knew, I knew once I filmed that, I was like, man, if this airs more than three times at two in the morning, I'm going to be around. This will buy me another 10. I kind of looked at it like decades. I would try to plan like 10 years at a time. Yeah. And I was like, okay, this might get me through at least five of those. <laughs> Little did you know, it got you through a lot more than that, you know? Like- it sure did. They aired it twice a night forever. It was, yeah. it, it was, it was uh, an embarrassment of riches because it was, it changed everything. It changed my, you know, I went from being like in the system as a kid, food stamps and blah, 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 to being like the first person in the whole lineage of my family to, to, to be wealthy. Nobody in my family had ever even known that word for eons. It's incredible. And it was, it was incredible to be able to give back and show my family a new kind of life and break the, break the chain of um, addiction. I'm the first, I've never had a drink or a drug in my life. I've never wanted it. I've never craved it. That's very admirable, man. It really is. It was just like I wanted to be the guy that could change some of the cycles of negativity that I had seen existing in my lineage for a long time. Good, man. I mean, that's 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 incredible. That's a remarkable statement. Never had a drink or a drug, and yet I rose to the very, very, very top of the industry. Yeah, that's impressive, man. It really is. That's impressive, dude. Yeah. That's another impressive thing. All right. Fun, uh, fun little fact about <laughs> fun little fact about that uh, that half hour, man. When it came out on, on on like a record, like you can get it on on CDs. Um, I I was in radio at the time. I was a radio DJ. It was back in like I think it was like two thousand three or four. When when did that come out? Two thousand four. Two. Two thousand two. Okay. So like I was I was in radio. I was doing late nights uh, in San Diego on a rock station and. Okay. I used to do this because uh, I was a big stand-up fan and I hadn't started stand-up yet, but like um, I used to on late nights on Friday nights. I'm like, sometimes I'd be like, dude, no one really, no one's listening. No one cares about me. No one gives a shit about what I have to say. So I would play a track from your record and I would call it like, it's comedy Friday night. And then I would just play like a quick, like one minute bit that you had, or like just a clip, you know? And, and uh, it became so popular. Like people were, people used to just call in going, who is that? Who are you playing? Like, is it what stand up is that? And so I go, oh, it's this guy Dane Cook. And then, like, it just became like such a like thing. And uh, I don't know, it kind of, um, it was you know, just became like a popular little segment on my little on my my little late night show that I had. So that 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 moment of my life, which you shared, was very unique forever because there was no, it was just all love for a little while. Yeah, it was when you're new and people are discovering you. Even if they're not into you, they're not gonna come against you. They're just gonna kind of be like, "Nah, not my thing." So there was this few years, both even online. The Hater Nation wasn't online. Trolls. If you were wrote a bad comment during that period, people were like, oh, "People couldn't believe you wrote anything negative." And it was <laughs> it was truly a few years of pure love and joy it really was amazing a great great very memorable time in in my life really really wonderful yeah that's great man and how long until you did um retaliation after that two years so yeah, yeah once, followed it up pretty quick harmful came out but i had harmful was like everything <clears throat> from 1990 up yeah, old, old stuff you wanted to get out yeah but i've been working the new material leading up to that record coming out for about three years I knew that I was going to go, I'm not going to have that sophomore slump. I knew it. I was like, 
I know this first one's good, but I know how second albums usually are like, eh. So I made sure to be working on it for a few years before I even recorded that first <clears> album. <throat> um, and I was really fortunate that, that the timing of the way those both came out, it really was a nice catapult um, into whatever was going to, you know, be next movies and all that other cool stuff. But yeah, man, those two albums, you know, in that, in that era of my life, it's when I look back at fo- photos or old uh, emails and I have everything. I've literally saved every fan email and good, <laughs> bad, whatever there. I could click on anyone from that date and it's like, just discovered you. Wow. Can't <laughs> wait to come to your show. So cool that you're coming to Delaware or, and it was just riding a wave of dream come true for a while. Well, Chris and I did a dream come true a couple of weeks ago in Connecticut on, on a, somebody's lawn. <laughs> it's like an you outdoor know. show in the middle of like this like field next to the woods. Like I'm getting heckled by geese going by. <laughs> like it's just like fuck, man. I remember thinking when before I went up there, I was like, I've played the White House. <laughs> Oh my god! Three times, and here I am in a field. Geese weren't people flying <laughs> over your head. Um, the, my first show, um, the set was kind of rough. Haven't done stand up in eight, nine, ten months. Yeah. Second set was okay, pretty good. It was kind of solid. No, nah, he, uh, he did. He did better than that. He's not giving himself enough credit. First show was good. The second show was even better. He, uh, as always, Daryl Hammond is a very funny comedian who knocked it out of the park, literally and figuratively. But but you can't hear them. <laughs> you know, you can't hear them. And I came off yeah. stage after the second set. I was like, did I tank? Right. Yeah. Because when they laugh, thing about the those, yeah, the sound isn't the there. Sound goes up and it, dis- it just dissipates right into the right into the sky. It, it sounds like. Ah. Yeah. yeah, Chris, do you remember that? I was like, "Did I tank?" Yeah, you were asking from the, like the stage. He's like, like "Am I doing f- okay?" Like, you're like, like "Yeah, you're fuck, I was like, "What the fuck is happening in that corner over there?" Because uh, evidently, whatever I have as a, as a performer, it ain't working in that little part of the biosphere. You know, it's fucking whacked out. But you know what? We did a show. I, I guess we'll go ahead. I can. I was going to say. I can tell you. There's. I think hearing comics with bad gig stories. I don't know if there's anything better. <laughs> Our bad oh, gig yeah. stories are way more entertaining than a person going. Oh, I saw a great show last night. It's like no. Me, Daryl, and Chris talked about the worst moments of our life. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I. I can. I can make comedians feel horror. Really feel horror when I tell them about some of the bombs I've had because I'm just. <laughs> Not the right person for that fucking show. Right. You know, like I I did this one show for big money for a major corporation. I was about, this is only a year or two ago. And I was backstage and I was feeling good. I was going to do 60 minutes. It's at the Marriott. The money's great. I'm in a good mood. And just before I go out there, they go, we're going to hold for a second so they can pray. (laughs) And I go, wait, what? I go, Wait, this is not a prayer group, is it? And they went, oh, yeah. Didn't you know so-and-so is a prayer group? And I went, okay, (laughs) dude, I'm from Saturday Night Live, okay? Okay? They're going to think that that Beelzebub himself is on that stage. Do you understand? (laughs) 
how am I going to tell a Sean Connery story? How am I going to tell a Clinton story? You know, the Monica Lewinsky thing. And I mean, the, the second I went out there, and then I saw there were maybe 40 or 50 children roaming around. <laughs> you know what happens when you mention Bill Clinton in front of 40 or 50 children? Mommy, he's in that house now, Monica Lewinsky. Oh. <laughs> 60 minutes of numbing silence. The sad thing is about when, when people always ask you about your best gigs, people will sometimes I'll ask you about your worst gig. And the worst thing about that is you always remember it. They'll never forget when you have an absolutely awful gig. We did a dinner, dinner lunch with uh, me, Bill Burr, Patrice O'Neill, and a bunch of guys, 93 or something like that. And somebody threw a buttered biscuit from the back of the room at Bill and it hit him butter side on the forehead and just stuck. <laughs> That's so fucking funny. I'm sorry. Okay. And then a week later, I was doing a, a bunch of SUNY, <clears throat> SUNY gigs in upstate New York. And Matt Frost booked me in a hallway in a fucking, literally standing on like a milk crate in a hallway where everybody was just going to be walking past, going to and from wherever. And you had to do, like, your bits. Why <laughs> <laughs> are college gigs always the fucking worst? With, with, with a movie, and uh, the, the audience is in motion. You know? I, I think Seinfeld said, um, you can't have any distractions from your joke. Well, how about they're going to the next fucking, they're going to get their car parked. You know what I mean? They're walking by you. Yes. Yeah. I mean, there's so many college gigs you do in the middle of a cafeteria. That's where they set you up when people don't either don't know or don't care that comedy's oh. going on. Can I tell you though? I love the cafeteria gigs. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> Did for, you? for me, my whole style was I I love in my whole career, everything about me, I love random. I love random. When it's formulaic. It's not so good for me. I like when it's a little off kilter. I like when I'm in a weird mood. Weird things in a good way happen. So when I would do those cafeterias, that gave me permission to be like, I can do whatever the fuck I want. I'm in a cafeteria. <laughs> I'll act like a T-Rex. I'll pour water on my... I don't, I don't care. I'm going to make sure when they leave here, they're like, who was that? Who was that guy? Yeah. So some of the worst gigs I did just get... Gave me gave me some kind of superpower in that moment versus the fear I already lived with of like my life can't get any worse than this. I'm gonna. They all expect bad right here. I'm gonna do something that hopefully makes them come back next time. It's a better setting. Yeah, so man. Some of those cafeteria gigs were were what really built my crowd out during that during that time. Yeah, well, also, you you might be helping future comedians besides yourself who are going to do that gig. You know, where, like, maybe because people go, oh, that last guy was really great. Let's see who we have this month, you know? And yeah. it's I, I learned a long time ago the best advice I got from those gigs was that a comedian told me, he goes, go in, if it's in the cafeteria, go in an hour early and ch change all the chairs and the tables to face the stage. Because a lot of times they won't be facing you. And so you're just doing comedy to people's backs as they eat. Some people are looking at you. Some people aren't. It's really weird. Go in there early and move everything around so it faces you. And I was like, all right. I, had a, I, I did had a show a couple. Go ahead. No, 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 you go. 
Well, I did a show a couple of years ago in in uh, Park City, Utah, where I got hired for a considerable amount of money. And I go to uh, I, I go there, and they put me up in a fucking chateau kind of fucking place, and <laughs> everything is fancy, and it's you know I'm, I'm being treated like great royalty. So, like right before the show, I went outside of my uh, the place I was living to smoke a cigarette, and I didn't see any seats. There was no seats. I was like, "Hey, Michael Jordan's coming to this show. Got it." They can't be standing up with their drinks and walking around. Right. Like, you got to get chairs. Or Here's your check. Take it back. I'm not going to fucking tank in front of Michael Jordan, man. Right, right. Like, you got to get some folding chairs, and you got to get that shit right now. Or I'm fucking going to the airport, and here's your money back. I ain't tanking in front of this. Michael Jordan? Right. <laughs> Jesus Christ. So they delayed the show like an hour. Someone went... I don't know where you get folding chairs. <laughs> a quick trip to Walmart. <laughs> At the folding and, and, you know, came back with like a hundred folding chairs. <laughs> and there were a hundred rich, drunk people. And in the front row was Michael Jordan. And I killed. I was like, thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you <laughs> that I didn't fucking bomb in front of Michael Jordan. Thank you. Folding chairs. I did yeah. a one time where they built a stage. They like built a makeshift stage. Um, out of, I guess, like those bunch of tables that you used to see at uh, a bake sale when you were a kid where the legs would fold out like like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. A bunch of those together. And so I'm on it, and I can feel them, like, every time I move, I'm, like, basically like this the whole time. And then finally one of the legs just went under, and I fucking slid between the legs of this lady in the front row. She looked down at me and went, oh, fuck. <laughs> oh my god Jesus. yeah those early we could we could do we could dedicate the next uh, time we do this if you have me back to hell oh, gig absolutely. only oh yeah we could do we could probably do it two hours easily of just all bad gigs of how many years the two of you have been going at it i mean i'm only in like 15 years in you guys are you know 20 25 plus cool. you know well but i i also have to say and again i um, i always have to just like you know say it straight up. It's like, also those gigs, I was a college kid performing to college age students, you know, never had a girlfriend really in high school, had one girlfriend finally. And suddenly I'm like in front of all these girls that like me and I'm like this cool guy. So that was also just like such a crazy fun era because I was like, Oh wow, I'm the entertainment. But then I also like was this, this, entryway to be able to meet people and hook up with girls it just was like that whole period of time before you <laughs> everybody like describe it as in this book i'm writing there's a, a period where you belong to your fans but it's not so fun once you belong to everybody because that's when it becomes more like about the business of show and fucking money and residuals who gets what Everybody, it's it's become so much more clinical and benign. But when it's just a, you and the audience that knows you, ah, the best. Yeah. Great era. Well, I mean, you went from doing shitty college gigs to doing Madison Square Garden, man. I mean, it's that's incredible. Like, yeah. tell, tell us a little bit about the Madison Square Garden gig. I mean, the first time you, you, you got to do that. Oh, man. I you've done it, walk- have you done it a couple times now? 
I did. Yeah, I did it a yeah. few times. I did it, uh, and then I did uh, the last time I did it was like in Friends, and I got to have a bunch of guys, you know, Burr and a bunch of people on the show with me. And but the first time I did it was, you know, uh, I used to walk by. I used to walk down to the village. I didn't have, you know, really even enough money for cabs or wherever, and I'd always walk by it, and I'd stand outside. And my sister Kelly saw Steve Martin there when I was 15 and she came home and told me these stories about, you know, this guy that I loved that I, you know, I wanted to, um, you know, follow his, his career, you know, bringing comedy into movies and TV and just love this guy. So I'd walk by and I'd look at this building and I'd kind of talk to it. You know, I always talked to myself. I was (laughs) such a loner that I was comfortable. Like there's a homeless guy talking to himself and there's me talking. I really want to play you. I was literally going like, I want to play you someday and you know, please don't go anywhere. Cause I'd like to play you <laughs> <laughs> talking well, to this fucking edifice in the middle of the night. Before you, it was only before you though, it was only what Steve Martin and dice clay, right? As far as comics go. I, I, you know, I guess so. They told me it was just a short list of, of people, but I do know that as far as like people selling it out in terms of like being in the round and doing it, I don't think anybody had done that in, in a, comedy sense but i know guys like dice they were like obviously he was selling out you know massive stadiums and stuff but whoever had done it before me didn't matter in that moment i was just there going (laughs) yeah yeah i gotta i gotta take this by the horns i this has to be one of my best nights ever on stage i can't how how long was your set an hour and 16 minutes 116 the perfect amount of time for not overstaying your welcome I, i think in comedy. <laughs> yeah, someone told me one time, is like, uh, on these big shows, they want 90 minutes, and then they, they want to have drinks and shit and, and, and go to dinner, and 90 minutes is enough time to knock them dead, you right. know? Yeah. yeah 90 Although I, I have seen Leno do 225 and 215. I saw Cosby do 90 minutes, and then he came back and did an extra 40 minutes as an encore. But well, um, Dane actually holds a record, I believe, either you or oh, Chappelle, right? Then no. you do it in like the Laugh Factory where you did like, you know. It's not a, people, that's not, I know. Everybody says, because I did seven hours and Chappelle did six and a half. The world record is literally like 36 hours, a guy standing on stage. Oh. I think we had both done a, a Laugh Factory record of Laugh long Factory. Sets. Yeah. yeah. I remember that. I was living in LA during that time. And I was like, holy shit, man, you were like buying pizza for people coming in. And like, I know it was, it was the one time in my life. I was like, I'm just going to go for it and see if I can do something like stupid and be up here all night. But you know why I did that? I didn't have anywhere to go. (laughs) It was like, Hey, I'm just bored. Let's do it. I did not have anywhere to go. And sometimes the dread of going home uh, or back to my apartment was like, we just want to live in that moment of on stage because we feel like somebody, we feel safe. It, you know, it occupies your mind in like a dopamine release, you know, level that for me, for a lot of years, I just needed to learn how to love my life as much as I loved my life there. You know, I wonder yeah. if we'll, uh, you know, Dane, I wonder if we'll ever bump into each other at the laugh factory again. Well, not only that, but I hope that there'll be a time when maybe we could actually break bread and grab a lunch. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, right? I, w- I would love to do that. What city are you in? I'm in L.A. Oh, all right. 
Yeah. I had to leave L.A. I mean, everything that I went there for closed. Right. I, I was, uh, at the time, was getting uh, treatment for um, type 2 diabetes from UCLA. I had, there were these two great shrinks that I wanted to work with in person, and we did EMDR and all this other shit, you know. Now I can't meet with anyone in person. Right. Um, I, the 12, I can't go to a 12-step meeting, which is a, has always been a big deal for me. And I can't go on stage. What am I doing there? Right. Right, you know? Yeah. Uh, all my shit was gone. So I daydream about um, West Hollywood. I, de- I daydream about walking, doing a set at the store and walking home. Fuck yeah. Right. Th- those are good nights. I feel like, uh, I feel strangely optimistic. Um, ca- you know, catastrophic moments in my life have always led to a, um, a better, a, just a better experience. And I, I, I have uh, what I call my golden gut. And in my life of 48 years, I think maybe a dozen times my gut has been gold. What does that mean? I know something. I'm no soothsayer, but I, I fucking know something. I knew when I was a kid I could do SNL, and I've had a few periods of my life. By the way, I've been wrong a bunch, but when my gut is gold – I tell people, just trust me on this. And my gut is gold on this. I think we're going to come out of this era. I think we're going to be okay. And I think that in some ways it's going to be a celebration in this country unlike ever before. So I know we'll have that lunch. And I know shows will come back. And I feel like we're going to be healthier and closer and more introspective than ever. I hope lots so. Of, lots of laughter, lots of STDs, maybe. <laughs> <And> <laughs> I mean, for more than any other industry outside of live music, stand-up comedy is going to be, you will be booked every night you want to be booked. If we can finally put this thing to bed, and we will, we will. We're going to. Oh, yeah. It's going to be an amazing period for all of us that love to be on stage and want to be on stage. Yeah, I mean, people are going to need comedy, man. Like, that's the thing is people always need that light, you know, in, in the darkness. And I feel like, you know, one of the best, best feelings for us is to go out and, and provide that light. And so, like, that's – I feel like it will always be a need. It will always be – there's always going to be room for stand-up. And then, especially after everything we've been through, I think that, you know – not to use a dumb industry term, but the bubble will come back. You know, like we're going to have another one of those. Yeah, you know, you know and my sort of fantasy is through. that Chris and I will do um, this podcast in front of a live audience. For instance, yes, if what happened here tonight <clears throat> happened in front of a live crowd at Gotham, we would have killed. Right. Yeah. We would absolutely. have killed. This right. show would have gotten lots of big <laughs>, laughs. And plus it was really informative as hell. Um, yeah, you know what I, I, mean? when you, I just, when you, I just miss stand up, man. <laughs> and also feel like, live crowds. I feel like we're also ushering in a new, um, I've seen, I, you know, I've seen the trends in comedy. Uh, you know, I've been a part of the trends of comedy. I've seen it turn corners after nine 11, certain moments of my life. And I feel like we're going to enter into a, a wonderful, wonderful era of stand up. And I think it's because of things like, a, a many an amalgamation of things, but when you see Daryl's documentary, when you see that Chappelle set that he did, the first one that went on YouTube um, that, with the George, George Floyd stuff, yep, I can I can name a bunch of people that what you're what I think you're going to finally see is I think the 
era of hubris in Boys Town is done in L.A. And I think that's okay. I think they had a, a great run out here, and they're all successful, and they're going to go on to do their own thing. And I think that you're going to see and have more permission for people to be way more real and emotional the way some of these comics that in, in these conversations will allow us to be. I think that's just going to allow shows to be so much more versatile and inclusive and interesting. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah you're going to see topics we never really thought we'd see on, in a comedy show, like your suicide stuff. I think so, man. And I think it'll give us all permission to fuck with each other a little bit more because, <laughs> you know, and I mean that because once everybody has the ability to be a part of the show, to express, then everybody can take a punch and give a punch. It's during that period where not all the voices were heard. Well, of course it starts to feel lopsided. But now when you get everybody out there and every kind of person from every walk of life is in the mix, we, now we can have at it again. That brings you back to permission of, you've seen us all love each other on the show again. Now we can haze each other and <laughs> bust balls and roast. Yeah. Absolutely, I think it's going man. to be an amazing, amazing era of stand-up, especially in Los Angeles. I, I know New York is kind of always going through a great metamorphosis, and I love that about New York. But I think more than ever, L.A. is going to come back in a whole new perspective of stand-up. I'm excited. Yeah, man, I agree. I'm excited as well. I mean, I like that outlook, and I, I, I think that it's... I think that you're right. I think you're you're dead on with that uh, that prediction, man. It's it's, uh, it's definitely something that everyone will need, and we'll have this almost this relieved feeling as comics to be like, oh my god, like we're through it. Like let's let's have a fucking good time, man. Like let's go out there and it's coming. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll be there. We will have that lunch, Daryl, and we will be sharing stages together. We just gotta continue to, you know. I, I say, if anybody's listening and you're a little lost and you're still tumbling. This is a moment to take that shovel, proverbial, and start groundwork on something new. This is really the moment. And more than anything else, I feel like this year has provided, I mean, great, it's a lot of fear, and there's certainly a lot of uncertainty. And I've, I've, I've seen and experienced firsthand people that are really suffering and, and struggling, uh, you know, with all kinds of debilitating issues. Um, and yet I'm seeing more than anything people so hopeful in laying down the seeds for what they want their lives and future to be. And so I know that stand-up comedy is going to be at the center of all of those people wanting to come together for those moments of release. Yeah. That's a good place to, uh, <clears throat> to start to wrap up. Yeah. Chris, tell no, tell no. him about the story. Does he... <laughs> well, two things real quick before, um, uh, before we end uh, the podcast here, one thing is I wanted to ask you, the one thing I love about you, Dane, is that you are a true stand-up. You are, your, your love for stand-up is really, you know, admirable. And I, that's how I feel that I, I love the art very much. But you had to transition to an actor as well. Like, did you find that like pretty hard to go from doing stand-up to all of a sudden, because you were catapulted as a stand-up and then jumping into these movies, like how, like, how was that for you? It was great. I don't look at any of those opportunities that I've had with anything but uh, uh, an appreciation, uh, especially because a lot of those films were happening simultaneously as I was dealing with unbelievable hardship of, you know, my mom with cancer, then my dad with cancer, then going through a trial with my brother, 
the, the, I, I describe it like this. The, the professional journey of my life was a dreamlike state, and the personal part of my life was a nightmare. Okay. And I'm living all of it at once. And, and you know what? And through it, I'm like, I'm proud of myself because I'm showing up every day, and I'm working hard every day to deliver both for what I need for myself and for what I think my fans are enjoying. So the opportunity to have done those kinds of films at that time in my life uh, was nothing short of just like, this is, this is the Steve Martin thing. I looked at him and I hope that, I hope that these are playing 10 years, 20 years from now and that people are still enjoying them, but nothing, bringing it back to Daryl, nothing in that moment of being on a, on a, on a, film set or none, none of it compares to the 20,000 hours of stand-up leading to the bulletproof moment of standing in front of Lorne Michaels alone, mm-hmm. standing on a movie set. It's fun. It's great. There's food. There's, you know, it, nothing, nothing stands to stand up and what that means to be alone on stage with the thoughts, with a direct vessel, without anybody impeding, without an editor, without standards of pride, nobody, it's your ideas to their ears. And so anything on a film set or a TV set is like, it's just like frosting on, on the cake. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's great, man. Cause you were, as a host, you were able to do your standup on Saturday night live, which is a yeah. lot of fun, man. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It was fun to watch anyway. Um, uh, so what we do normally on our podcasting is that we usually ask, uh, all our guests, if you want to tell us a, like some fun, wild story that maybe you experienced either from the road or TV or, movies any of that stuff you've done if you have a, a you know a good story you'd like to tell us doesn't have to be long doesn't have to be crazy but no quick, quick story crazy thing that just popped into my mind was um there used to be a hotel in new york called the regal royale hotel um and they booked me uh my third letterman letterman appearance they booked me in this hotel and i was sound asleep in my room and I'm under the sheet. And for whatever reason, sometimes when I'm sleeping, I'm face down in the, and I sleep like completely under all the sheets of blankets. And all of a sudden, I'm sound asleep. And full disclosure, I don't like pajamas. I always get like hot and sweaty in them. So most of the time, I'm, I sleep naked. Okay. I'm naked underneath the sheet. And then I kind of start waking up because I'm, I'm sensing somebody's in the room. And I hear two voices on both sides of me like, grab that watch. The watch right there. I got a computer. Take this computer. And I'm being robbed. Oh, shit. And I'm, I'm terrified. And it's, it's hitting me immediately that there's two guys in the room and they're stealing my shit. And so I have to make a split-second decision to fight these guys naked before they hit me over the head and kill me. You know, for, you know like they discover. I had one second to make this decision. So I launched myself just straight up like... I just put my hands and knees and I just jumped straight. And thank God they had just realized that I was still in the room. And as I jump up and throw the sheet up and I'm ready to, I don't know, fight two, two dudes. They were like this and running out of the, just dropping my shit. And I chased them out the door. Cause now my adrenaline's up and they <laughs> ran down the hallway. They had disguised themselves as people were janitors or something and gotten the key cards from a maid and were <laughs> going into people's rooms and, and, and I just think about that moment from time to time. Oh, man, what would have happened if a second earlier I jumped up and was like, it was on. I was actually fighting two dudes naked in my phone. <laughs> when, when you ran out in the hallway after them, did you think, 
stop for a second to consider putting your underwear on. <laughs> I think that's what put me back in the room. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah, I would love for uh, if somebody was listening to this that was one of those guys yes. to come and go, hey, Dane, that was the dude that was trying to rob you. Like, oh, tr- trust me, now I'm going to get 20 people DMing me, oh, I was the dude. Yeah, no shit, right? <laughs> well, that's I a was fun one of the guys. <laughs> it's a fun story, man. Daryl, what would you have done in that situation? Me? Yeah. If you were, if you were naked I in bed? I, I, I would I, Jesus Christ, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I think for that reason, I never, I, I feel so vulnerable when I sleep. You know, I've never, never slept naked. I always have my underwear on, but I, but confronted with two fucking bad guys. Right. In the middle of the night, man, I don't know what the fuck. I, I might have played dead. <laughs> but I just laid there. Right. <clears throat> but you sort of make this decision like, look, if I don't jump up and make a move right now, some move, any fucking move, yeah. you know, this could turn into a nightmare. Like one of those things from forensic, uh, those forensic uh, crime Fren- shows. Forensic files, yeah. Right. Like something really fucked up where a guy picks up a club and starts hitting me. Yeah. shit. Well, I used to have a bit, and it was actually in my head, where I used to do a thing on stage where I'd say, Someday when I die, the only thing I never want to be described as, as skeletal remains. Yeah. And that bit was in my brain. I'm like, the last thing of like, Dane Cook bludgeoned to death in a hotel. Yeah. Like, I was like, I'm not getting bludgeoned. To, I'm at least going to put up a fight here. Yeah, I don't want, I don't want blood spatter velocity, <laughs> you know, in my obituary. Dime-sized droplets of blood. Um, shallow, shallow grave. <laughs> yeah, none of those, none of those phrases to describe that. That would be great. Yeah, oh, no, I, yeah. I, 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 yeah. My, my my ego was like, I can't let this be my last moments I, on earth. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I personally, I don't know what I would do. I only had one time where I years ago I was walking back to my car late at night, and uh, someone was breaking into it, and I walked up on the guy, and I and I was so caught off guard. I just go, hey, that's my car. And like the guy jumps up and he bolts, but I'm like, and 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 like it's so jarring in the moment. And I just kind of like then I started thinking like, well, that was kind of stupid, dude. Because what if he just put his head up, looked at me, saw right. how big I was, you know, because I'm a short little dude. And like he probably been like, dude, give me your keys. And like I would have been like, here, like, you know, like, what am I gonna do in that situation? He just got scared because I like kind of like made my voice, you right. know pronounced and like i walk i scared him as much as he scared me i think that's what the, the whole thing was but you i don't think back on that going what the fuck would i have done you know because i've always wondered if someone was trying to abduct me and force me into a car you know you and they had a knife on my back i think i would make I, I hope i would make the choice that you made dane where i said hey i'm fucked anyway yes i gotta try something Right, because this is not going to end well. <laughs> right. This is going to be a fucking horror movie. So, yeah. Well, uh, well, we appreciate you being on today, Dane. Uh, I can't tell you how much uh, we loved having you on and hearing some of these great stories about coming up through stand up and uh, you know all the stuff you've you've done through your life, man. So, I look forward to seeing that book. Uh, you have uh, any uh, any idea when that's going to come out yet? Yeah, it's it's done. I mean, it's I done. Congratulations. Pandemic. So now we're just in the process of, um, you know, it's I'm I'm deeply proud of it, man, and I hope it 
I hope it helps a lot of people. It's it's really more than anything about kind of my philosophy of overcoming, you know, the the the, the traumas in my own life and, and and how I grew up and alcoholism and and yet at the same time it's it's very funny because of the career and, and the great stories and access that I've had. So uh, somebody read it recently and said this reminds me of Confessions of a Dangerous Mind or something because you've got this unbelievable story of what my brother did to me and when people finally see that full story of how grim it actually got and what I experienced in that uh unbel- looking back at it if it didn't happen to me I almost wouldn't believe what was what I put together it's it's a harrowing tale that's hilarious okay well can't wait to see that book, man. I can't wait to read it and, uh, you know, you, check man. it out for sure. And I'm sure Daryl feels the same way, man. And uh, I don't know if there's anything you want to plug real quick before uh, before we hop off. I mean, you've got so many specials that people can check out, obviously, and your movies are still playing everywhere. Yeah, the, the only thing I keep telling people is I'm so proud of this live read that we did with uh, oh, right. John yeah. Penn, and we did it for CORE, and people can still find it online. And if they have the ability to donate anything at all, if you're entertained by what we put together, um, we did a live read of Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Uh, it's, the links are still on my Instagram, at Dane Cook. So if you can give, if you have a good time and, and give a little bit, I've been out there and working with these people, boots on the ground people at CORE. Um, they're great people, uh, great volunteers. So that's the only thing I'd love for people right. to, to, if they haven't seen it yet, Check it out, and hopefully next time I see you guys, we are uh, together maybe on a stage doing this at the <laughs> Gotham or somewhere fun. Absolutely, man. We can't wait to do this live or just do shows together, stand-up-wise, you know, be on the same lineups again. That would be it really meant a lot. It really meant a lot to me, Daryl. Thank you. And Chris, of course, you know, we've known each other, but it just really meant a lot to me full circle to finally be uh, sharing some some time with you, Daryl, and doing and entertaining people and be expressing together. So congratulations on everything. And thank you. And thank you too. And I admire you too. And I'm penciling down in my mind, I'm penciling lunch at Mel's. <laughs> Dang. Yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, yeah, before, before we let you go real quick, uh, that, that fast times uh, at Richmond high, the, that was that, that whole thing. You organized it, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's impressive, man. And congratulations on that. If anybody's listening that hasn't checked it out, the clips are great. They were brilliant, man. It was it was fun to watch all those famous people come together for such a good cause. And man, was it funny to watch like some of these, you know, some of these actors were really great, man. They really really went for it. You know, We we didn't tell anybody to do anything other than just come and celebrate the amazing writing of Cameron Cameron Crowe and directing of Amy Heckerling. And Brad Pitt brought props and hats and Shia LaBeouf came method. And uh, <laughs> I mean, everybody came with something unique and fascinating. And uh, I found myself sitting in the middle of a pandemic that, of course, has, you know, ruptured everybody's lives and, and realized, you know, I'm still fulfilling the dream of, uh, of that I had when I was this lonely kid. Of I want to entertain the world. And uh, we did. You know, we, we got to reach out to and bring joy and make people go, Oh my God, I love these people. I miss seeing these people in movies and to have put that together. It just to anybody out there with a dream, it's a testament of, yeah, a lot of people said that was never going to happen and it was fucking impossible. And I heard literally, no, no, it's not, that won't work. They won't do it. You just got to go with that goal, your golden gut. If your gut is gold on something, you do not take no for an answer. 
Absolutely, man. And I'm glad you did it. And I know a lot of other people are glad you did it too. So thanks, man. Thanks, yeah. Chris. Thanks again for being a guest, man. It's great catching up with you and great to see you, man. Fellas, stay stay safe, stay healthy, and I look forward to seeing you guys around the way. Yep. Same Love you, buddy. You. I hope to see you soon. Love you guys. All right. All right Take care. See you soon, Later. man. Alrighty. Thank you. Oh, guys, that was our uh, that was our episode with what a great, amazing guest we had today, Dane Cook. Uh, I uh, always loved uh, talking to that guy. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to know him for quite a few years, as we were talking about, and to have done so many shows with him. Um, he's done my shows. Uh, we've just been on the same lineups at the Improv a few times in over the years. But what do you think, Daryl? Great show, right? I don't understand how they did anyone would listen to that and not give it a five. Oh, yeah. Guys, give us a five-star rating. Come on. that I mean, come I mean, on. We had a fuck? legend. We had a comedy legend, stand-up comedy legend on there. And uh, we'll definitely have to get him back. And that's the thing, you guys. You know, we're getting a lot of positive feedback from these episodes. And some of these guys, we want to have them back for a second episode. We try to yeah. cram in, uh, you know, we cram in quite a bit. I mean, that was a longer episode. But uh, we, we, we want to do more. There's a lot more we want to ask and we want to talk about. And, you know, we, have a, we share a bond of you know, with people like Dane of, of, of the stage. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just excited for how, uh, the direction of our podcast is going. We've got some really cool guests coming up and, uh, not everyone's going to be a stand up. We have some actors. We have, a, a hopefully a, a, very, um, prominent news anchor coming on soon. So well, um, he's, he has agreed. He has agreed to it. So, you know, uh, Jake Tapper is our, uh, is our uh, one of our guests coming up? Hopefully, he loves Daryl, and Daryl loves him. So, we've got some great uh, we've got some great guests coming up. And thank you guys so much for, again for listening. Please make sure to share this on social media, add us all on social media, and uh, five stars again. Like I said, so thank you all. We will be back next week with another great episode of the Third Person Podcast. We'll see you then. <laughs>